Well, hi, I'm Elizabeth. And I'm uh, usually loud without a microphone, so <laughs> um, I, I was uh, concerned. I thought, oh, there's only going to be about, uh-oh, all right. Get it adjusted. Oh, no. <laughs> all right. I was concerned. I was thinking, oh, no, there's only going to be three people for me to talk to, and they're going to think I'm dumb. And then four of my friends showed up, and they already know that I'm dumb, so that anxiety is just <laughs> gone. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of my, I wasn't going to start this way, but I'm starting this way now. That's one of my blessings in this program is that I have friends that will show up for me today, which I didn't have 10 years ago when I was coming, when I first started coming to this meeting. Um, and I have friends who not only will show up for me, they will show up for me multiple times. I think Joe has heard my story at least four times. So, <laughs> and of course it does kind of change as we tell it as the years go by because we get a different perspective and we learn what we're talking about. Um, I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. I did celebrate 10 years of recovery in October this year. So, and that is absolutely amazing to me. I, I know we generally try to tell our stories in the format of what it was like what happened and how we are today. And if I try to do that, I get so caught in my fascinating story and all these fun details that I never get to the recovery part. So um, I usually start with how I welcome newcomers and then kind of explain why my welcome is the way that it is. Because when we welcome newcomers in Al-Anon, um, we have some things that we tell them and we share just a little bit of our story, what it was like when we got here and how Al-Anon has helped because that's what's encouraging to newcomers. That was what was encouraging to me. And when I got here, I was just angry. I was angry, resistant, and hostile. I did not want to be here. I knew it wasn't going to help. I wanted to do anything but this, but I was out of other ideas. And so <laughs> I came, you know, I was that desperate. I was that unhappy. And at my first meeting, they told me the three C's. They told me, you didn't cause the disease of alcoholism. You can't control it, and you can't cure it. And I went, duh. You know, <laughs> hello, obviously I didn't cause it. It is clearly his fault. And if I could control it, hello, I would not need to be here. <laughs> and then I didn't even know why there was a third C, because I thought controlling it was the cure. So what do you mean? And <laughs> it took me several years to start understanding that the reason that I drove myself insane trying to do the right thing or not do the wrong thing or say the right thing or not say the wrong thing was because I believed that I caused it that I was in some way to fault, at fault, that I did have some kind of blame. And, you know, I knew that I thought that I could control it, but I also knew that I had failed at that completely. So they told me at my first meeting to try six different meetings because they all have different personality and same structure, but you'll see some same faces, some different faces. Some of them are big, some of them are small. And I just went, yeah, there's no way that's happening. It took everything I had to get to that first meeting. I... I was so resistant and I was so angry and I was so miserable. I just crawled in bleeding and it was all that I could do. And there was no way. And I, I've learned and I really believe that, that the higher power that I call God takes us where we need to go when we need to be there. Because I went into this meeting and it was horribly hard to do and I was so embarrassed and so ashamed because, of course, all of you were going to know what a failure I was that I couldn't control this thing. It hadn't occurred to me that... You know, that was maybe normal. Um, <laughs> I lost my train of thought there. Uh, I couldn't go to six different meetings. That was the only thing I could do was the meetings that I went to. So I didn't. I just said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And... Um, that's okay. That was enough. God takes us where we need to be. That's what I was talking about. And um, that meeting to me was enormous. It was this huge crowd of five people, you know, and if I, <laughs> because I had become that isolated. I was so isolated that five people was a lot and it was hard for me. I couldn't make eye contact at the time. I couldn't make eye contact with anybody. And um, that was just really as difficult as it got. And I couldn't do other meetings. And so I didn't for a while. <laughs> um, and then I learned later when my home groups both closed that there's a reason why we try different meetings so that we have some familiarity and we, ha we can have some flexibility in our programs and we don't have to have that trauma. Um, they also told me to, make, to, to not make any major decisions for the first six months to a year that I was in Al-Anon because they said things can change a lot if you're working a program. And you don't want to make any decisions now that you might regret. And if you take your time to make the decision, 
would be a better thing. And that was the thing that I could hear that brought me some relief because a lot of my insanity was that trying to control it because my, my husband at the time and I had been separated already for two years. And I was convinced I had to have the answer. And not only did I have to have the answer, I had to have it right now or yesterday or last week or, you know, a year ago. Who does that? They separated for two years, you know, and, and I was just driving myself insane with that. And they said six months to a year. And I said, well, okay, I can give it six months. That's like a drop in the bucket of misery. I'd been crying nonstop for a couple of years and six months was like nothing. So I said, okay, well, I can do six months of my best shot. And, uh, my best shot sometimes didn't seem very good because of how angry, resistant, and hostile I was. So I like to explain why, it, why it is that I was so mad because I come from alcoholism. I know that there are some people that didn't grow up with it and they, and they go and they marry it and then they're really confused. And <laughs> I grew up in it. So my confusion is different, but my grandmother is, was an alcoholic when she was alive. And she used to talk about alcohol the way that I hear Alan on people talk about their alcoholics. And she told me one time, I always loved to drink. And she just lit up like a Christmas tree because that was her thing that she did. And she explained to me that, um, when she was drinking, she could be the person that she wanted to be instead of the person that she was. She was outgoing. She was the belle of the ball. She was the center of attention. She was the star. And she got that from alcohol, and it was important to her. Now, she had grown up in an alcoholic home. Her her father was the guy during the Depression who stopped at the bar on his way home with a pay packet and bought drinks all around and did not come home with enough money for his family. So my grandmother grew up listening to those screaming fights, and she vowed she would never live that way. And she never did. She never did. She She eliminated that chaotic element of alcoholism from her life, but she still passed on the disease. It still came down. My mother learned all the crazy rules that, that we learn about how to, how to navigate uncertain waters. And uh, she passed them on. And I learned them as rules of how this is how the world works. So when I got out of my family and I got into the world, it was kind of weird that nothing that I thought was how it should be it never went that way. Very, very frustrating. Um, my resentment really started, though, because I say resistant and hostile. I was resistant because I had a lot of resentment. And I had a lot of resentment towards the program, towards any alcoholic, living or dead, <laughs> drunk or sober. If you were an alcoholic, I hated you, and it was your fault that my life was miserable. And, um, and I had a, lot, a huge resentment towards AA. And like I said, I came into a program that I already knew didn't work. And I have no idea how it did work, but it, it did. <laughs> um, and actually, I do have an idea how it worked, and I can share about that. Um, when I was 16, some, something was really, really wrong in my home, and I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I there was this... I had this miserable feeling in my gut all of the time. We were fighting constantly. My parents were divorced when I was six, so... It was my, me and my mother and my younger brother. And we were having these huge fights constantly, and it was always chaotic and dramatic. And, and I felt horrible all the time, and I, didn't have a, I couldn't find a reason. I couldn't figure out why that was. And so I was thinking about it one day, and I thought, you know, I, we had done, I'd been to counseling. I'd talked to a Lutheran minister, I'd talked to a Catholic priest, I'd talked to a Presbyterian youth minister, I had gone, you know, we had used all these resources and nothing was helping. And so I thought about it and I thought, well, I know, if I got a drug problem, then my family could get some help and then we'd be fine. So I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I like this, this is my, my best illustration of the kind of thinking that I do on my own. And so I set out to have a drug problem. <laughs> and at the time, all of my friends were using various drugs. There were, there were drugs all over everywhere. You know, it was easily accessible to me because those are who my friends were, um, pot and everything else. But I was the designated clean person. I was the person who was supposed to stay clean so that if something went really, really wrong, somebody could explain to the cops or the fire department or the parents, whoever came. So that was always the plan. So I never participated. And that was the view of me. And so I had access and I didn't go that way. And I, I used um, some over-counter medicine and made kind of a mess. But, you know, I was not having a drug problem. I was creating a fake drug problem so that I could get help from my family. This was what they say in our opening, forcing a solution. 
here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force this solution through. My brother found pills in my room, took them to my mother. She took them to a chemist, had them analyzed, and slapped me in a treatment center. And I went, cool, it worked. And I stopped because, because I did not have a drug problem. I had a thinking problem is what I had, and I had some control issues. So I turned 17 in a treatment center for a drug addiction that I didn't have. And I went to, <laughs> I went to at that time, a lot of AA and NA meetings. And when I got to the treatment center, I said, I don't have a drug problem. I did this on purpose because there's something really wrong with my family and we need help. And they said, we call that denial, Elizabeth. And I went, and I didn't really understand. And so I had a lot of people in AA and NA and at the treatment center trying to help me by breaking down that denial and getting me to tell the truth when I was telling the truth. (laughs) And in retrospect, I can look at that and say, well, of course that's what they thought. But at the time, you know, I was kind of young. I didn't really know how to handle it. And it it wasn't really good for me (laughs) to have that happen. So meanwhile, in outpatient treatment, because I went inpatient, um, in outpatient treatment, my mother was getting what she needed. She met Al-Anon, and it was something new. And my brother met Al-Anon and (laughs) meant nothing to him. And, you know, and she had no idea, because what was seeming right to her, she had no idea that we did not have the right thing going on, that there was... (laughs) And I don't know how she could have known that it was that sick, <laughs> that, that we were doing that, that we had just traded places. Um, it wasn't detected in, in treatment at all that he had a problem. I learned 10 years later that that was the time. The time that I started feeling like there was this horrible problem in my family was the time that he had started doing drugs and drinking. And I didn't know. And I have always felt glad that um, really his, really he's alcoholic. You know, the the drugs aren't the thing that have gotten the stronghold of, on him. It's alcohol. But um, what I saw happen was I saw that I didn't get helped, and I saw that my brother didn't get help, and I saw that my mother got help for a little while and then stopped. And so what I saw was that this program didn't work. That is what I saw. And it took me a lot. <laughs> it took me about three years in the program to go, it works if you work it. What I saw was a bunch of people not working it. But I was angry about it, and um, I went off, and I, you know, I got through school. I got married. Uh, my first husband was not an alcoholic, but he came from an alcoholic family, and he came from that kind of violent, brutal alcoholism. His father beat his mother and all the kids until she got the gumption up to move him across the country. And so I learned about violence in that marriage, and I didn't learn a lot, but I kind of think anything you learn about violence in your home is enough. It doesn't matter if it's a little or a lot. It's enough. And um, that marriage didn't last. We were really young. We got married at 19. Everybody said, you're crazy. It's not going to last. And I said, how can you say that? And it didn't. And, uh, <laughs> and um, a few months before the divorce, I had moved in with this other guy who was much older and handicapped. <laughs> and that, that kind of, it was a safer place for me to be. And that relationship lasted for a little while, but his drinking bothered me. It didn't bother me hugely, but it bothered me. And uh, I never could decide, well, it's only a six-pack a night. Is that a problem or not? I, you know, and <laughs> when that relationship ended, meanwhile, I had started a job where there I smoked when I was younger. And I had started a job where I was a secretary, and um, I made friends with one of the vice presidents because he was a smoker. And when I started working there, we smoked in his office, and then within the year, that became no longer the thing to be done. And we went outside, and we smoked in the snow, and we smoked in the heat, and we smoked in the rain, sometimes in a car. And we got to be friends, and we got to be better friends. And that relationship developed over years. He saw me through some dating relationships. He moved my belongings all over the city that we lived in for me. And he was just this amazing, amazing man. He was calm all the time. <laughs> and I didn't understand calm at all because I grew up with chaos, and I didn't I didn't get it. How are you calm? What is that about? And... Um, For example, (laughs) the guy that I was living with one day got upset with me and threw all my belongings out on the lawn. So I went home and found all my belongings on the lawn and piled them into the back of my VW Bug and (laughs) went and stayed with a friend, and then I went to work. And then I went to work a couple days with all of my stuff jammed into the back of the Bug until somebody finally asked me, do you need a place to stay? Are you living in your car? And um, 
And during, during that time while I was trying to get that sorted out, I didn't have any money, so I kind of just didn't eat. And, you know, it was not until I got to Al-Anon that I found other people who understood forgetting to eat. I would just forget. I'm too busy. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not hungry, you know, or I'm hungry, but I won't be in five minutes if I ignore it or whatever. And I was starting to get dizzy, and, <laughs> and I thought, this isn't good. Why am, I, why, why am I feeling dizzy and stuff? And then I went, oh, well, maybe because I haven't eaten in two days. So I went into his office, and I said, uh, you need to take me lunch because I haven't eaten in two days, and I don't have any money until we get paid next week. And he said, okay. That was it. That was all he said. Okay. And we went and we got food. And when we were seated, I said, uh, nothing phases you? And he said, no, not really. And I found out that that was true. It didn't matter how much chaos I had going on. It didn't matter how dramatic I thought everything was. He just kind of went, doo, doo, doo. And it was amazing. I had never seen that in another person. And so I... I was learning that from him. I had started kind of learning how to stay calm. He could keep me calm instead because I just would sound off at the drop of anything. And um, he could put his hand on my shoulder and I would calm down. And it was the most amazing thing. So I really had him up on a, on a pedestal. He, was, he got up there pretty high because he had all of this that I had never even heard of, how to be serene. I think he had serenity. And um, that lasted until a few months before we got married when uh, his dog died. And she was 13 years old. She'd been his only companion. And it was heartbreaking to him. And I came home and found him drunk. And that made sense to me because as a non-alcoholic, sometimes, you know, just take the edge off it and get through. But he never stopped drinking after that. And what I learned after we were married was that he had been in AA. And probably he had six or seven years sober in AA before we started dating. But at the time that we started dating, he was no longer going to meetings. And um, so then when something happened, he didn't have tools anymore to deal with it, and he started drinking. And I learned that everything I'd ever heard in a treatment center was true. It picked up where it left off. He went back to where he was. And the descent to me, because I hadn't been there with, you know, I hadn't been through any of that with him, his descent was just horrifying because on top of that also I had him up on this really high pedestal and when he started falling off it I just it was just horrible to watch you know his his thinking got crazy and I didn't recognize that right away he'd been my wisdom go-to guy and and, uh, when he started getting crazy I didn't notice it and so after we had separated just as an example he said uh, one night I called him at 730 and he knew I didn't like to talk to him when he'd been drinking, so he made up a new rule that it was too late to be calling anybody after 7.30. <laughs> so I stopped calling everybody ever after 7.30, which bewildered all of my nighttime friends that I used to talk to in the middle of the night. They didn't understand. And I was like, are you sure it's okay to call? Because it's after 7.30. And they're like, hello, I just woke up. You know, <laughs> it was, um, I just followed right along into that insanity. And what that meant for me was there was... Lots of examples of forcing solutions. I've got lots of crazy thinking that I did. Um, I, I left out the part in my first marriage about I decided to shoot him in the knees and that that would stop the violence. And I said, I've got this plan. I'll go get a gun and I'll learn how to shoot really well and then I'll stop you. And he said, that's a good idea. And then fortunately God had other plans and that was pretty much, you know, he pretty much immediately put us in different places so that so that we didn't have to go there. But I look at... I look at my friends who take meetings into prisons, and I know how far away I was from that. You know, I wasn't very far away from that. That was the grace of God that I'm not in the prison. And I know today, you know, it's the grace of God that I'm not, that I'm not the alcoholic. I'm just crazy all on my own, which I'm not sure whether that's good or not. <laughs> when I, you know, I, I, I was very, very high and mighty about the whole drinking thing, but then I think about it, and I'm not really any more sane, but I can't blame a chemical. So, so I think about that. Um, when I got here, what actually brought me to a first meeting in a program that I know didn't work because it hadn't worked in my family and it clearly hadn't worked for my husband since he'd been doing that and then he stopped and then he relapsed and I just knew that it didn't work. Um, I had gotten into kind of a cycle where I would go crazy at the drop of a hat and he liked dropping hats just to watch that. But I would go crazy at the drop of a hat. And I would get really, really paranoid. And I would call all of my friends, all like four of them that were left at the time, and accuse them of, you know, colluding behind my back and plotting and scheming. And 
<laughs> and, and things like that. And then the next day I would think, maybe I'm doing that again and I'm wrong again. And I'd go, no, 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 this time it's really like that. And then two days later I'd think, you know, I think I might have done it again. And then three days later I'd go, you know, I did it again. I can't believe I did it again. And then I would be in that shame and remorse and I would have to go and apologize to everybody. And, you know, what I didn't realize at the time was I had a lot of unhealthy friends who kind of liked that about me. <laughs> but it felt terrible. It felt terrible. So my life was a wreck. I had, I was abusing my friends this way, what friends there were. Um, by the time I came to meetings, there was really only one left. Um, my husband and I were separated and I didn't want that. I just, I wanted him to stop drinking so we could have our marriage back the way it was when I married him. And, um, you know, I was working, but I was physically broken. I had a back problem. I was, I was not strong. I was broken in about every way that there is to be broken. And I was, I was, I would say pretty spiritually bankrupt. And I had a day, I went through that cycle and I went, you know, I cannot keep doing this. I can't treat people this way. And I had found an online forum. I was at the time participating in CompuServe. And it was a recovery forum in CompuServe. And I had gone in and read a bunch of stuff. We called it lurking. I had gone in and read a bunch of stuff and come out and thought about it and gone in and read some stuff and thought about it. And then one time I posted. And there's a, there's a double winner in upstate New York that I owe a huge debt to of gratitude that I try to pay forward. You know, he, he, um, he talked to me every time I surfaced, he would talk to me and eventually he would say, you know, you really should go to a face-to-face -face meeting. It's a little different from just lurking in an online forum. And I would say, no, you know, thanks very much. That's not going to happen. And I would be out of there and I wouldn't be, I'd be reading, but I wouldn't be posting again. And he just patiently every single time. And he would welcome me. Oh, hi. How nice to see you. How's it going? How's it been? And then he would say, you should really go to a face-to-face -face meeting. And I'd be like, no, no, thanks. I'm not doing that. But that was a start, I think. And I forget that it kind of started there. I had a little bit of a start before I made it to that first meeting. Um, I also forgot that I had never been to an Al-Anon meeting before. I'd only been to an AA or an NA meeting. And, that may, and it didn't occur to me that they might be a little different. And there are some differences. In my experience, there are some differences in the programs. Um, when I came, what I could do was I could go to meetings... And I went to two meetings a week. I had a job where I traveled a lot. And there was a, I had a friend at the time whose sponsor challenged her to start picking up that 900-pound phone and making some calls. Well, she was going to these meetings with me, and everybody knew that I had no life. I was going to work, and I was going home, and I was going to work, and I was going home, and that was all I was doing. And so she knew that. So she picked on me to call as a safe bet because I was going to be there when she called. And she started calling me, and she would call me and say, well, let's go, there's this gathering going on over here. Let's go to this meeting. Or, oh, by the way, I'm speaking at, at some thing, and I don't want to. Why don't you come along? And she would come and get me, and we would go and do stuff. And, and um, that was helpful. I also had, in that initial fellowship of mine, I had some people that came to Mesa Roundup dances, and they would bring me to the dances. And I didn't have anything to do on holidays. My first year in Al-Anon, I celebrated Christmas by doing laundry because the laundry room, nobody was using it. <laughs> and I was proud of that <laughs> because I, instead of sitting around and going, oh, I'm having the worst, most miserable Christmas ever, I said, what can I do? And what I could do was laundry. So I did what was in front of me to do, and I thought that was a good thing. And um, it hadn't occurred to me to try to go home and be with my family or, <laughs> or maybe hook up with some other people. It didn't even occur to me. My isolation was like that. I didn't, I didn't know how to do that reaching out. But Al-Anon people knew how to reach out to me. They knew how to tell me, hey, there's dances on these holidays. You can at least come and dance with us. And they knew how to, they knew how to call and say, they're making me share on my birthday and I don't want to. <laughs> and they did. And um, she became a really good friend. And I was not able to do sponsorship immediately coming into this program because I couldn't trust anybody. What brought me was the realization that I couldn't trust anybody around me, and the reason for that was I couldn't trust myself because I was picking these people. And I was like, you know, what's the point? And I had, there was a long timer when I started going to meetings. She's a, she also does both programs that she would, she was, you know, talking to me after meetings and being nice, and I looked at her and I said, you know, I know what you're trying to do, and I appreciate it, but I just want to let you know that it's not going to work because I don't trust you, and I'm not going to trust you, so I really don't think you should waste your time. <laughs> and she looked at me for a minute, and she said, well, let's go get coffee. And I went, 
You know, she undid me with that. I didn't have a good response, so let's go get coffee. So we went and got coffee. And um, she did she did some work with me for a while, and it didn't, it ended up, I guess it was just time for us to stop. But this other friend, meanwhile, that relationship built up, and we never called it sponsorship. She didn't want the <laughs> responsibility, and I didn't want the accountability, so we never called it sponsorship. <laughs> but it worked for us. She um, She came and got me to go to things, and... She would tell me things like, she would talk about her prayer partner. And I finally, I would ask her, I remember this conversation. I said, so what exactly is a prayer partner? You keep talking about that. And she said, well, you know, we call each other up in the morning. I said, in the morning before you go to work? And she said, yeah. I said, like what, five o'clock? She said, yeah. And I was like, okay. She would call each other up in the morning and we, we do a reading or something and we talk about, you know, what, what our concerns are maybe. And we, and we say a little prayer and then we get off the phone and go to work. And I went, that is the weirdest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> and and she said, well, it's what I do. And I went, okay. And I it stayed in my mind for a while. And, and of course, right when I decided maybe it would be a good idea to have a prayer partner, God had one ready for me. She was right there. And I had a prayer partner that we prayed every morning together for three years and didn't miss very many of those mornings. And she really made a huge difference. And... Um, you know, I, I think when I look back, I say I have no idea how I got over all of that resistance. I do know. I did things that made no sense to me, got results that I didn't understand, but I did get those results from taking those actions. And I never I never once thought, what a good idea. I always thought, that is the stupidest thing I ever heard. Or, how is that going to work? That's just dumb. But I always did it. I always did it. I always took whatever that stupid, nonsensical action was and somehow those things all added up <laughs> to some to some recovery you know i stopped crying all of the time and i stopped being quite so reactionary you know it it that one had to had to kind of reel that one in it would be like i would notice it 3 days later and then i would notice it 2 days later and then i'd notice it the next day and then i'd notice it right before it came out of my mouth and it was too late cuz it was already coming out hate that and then eventually i could notice it and actually stop and think about, is this what I want to say? But things had to back up. And I can't say that I did anything specific to work on that, because I didn't. I had a prayer partner, and I went to some meetings, and I they told me to go to open AA meetings, and I said, oh, hell no. <laughs> you, I am not doing that, ever. Don't even, ever. So I don't know what your program friends are like, but my program friends went, hmm, and just tricked me into going to AA meetings. <laughs> they would call me up because they knew. They knew I had no life. I had no other alternatives. I had no people. I had nothing. And they knew that. And they would call and they'd say, hey, there's a new meeting that I want to go to. And I'd say, okay. And they would pick me up because I had this back problem and that way I didn't have to do the driving. And they would take me to North Scottsdale and say, by the way, it's an AA speaker meeting. You don't mind, do you? <laughs> like, yes, I mind. <laughs> but it was too late. I was in the car. <laughs> it was what we were supposed to do. And I was very big on doing what you're supposed to do. So um, I would go, and AA meetings just would piss me off. I'd hear the speaker, and I'd just be like, you know, these are the things that, that, that happened to me last week. I hate this man. And, you know, people would be laughing, and I'd be like, it is not funny. This is not funny. This is my life, and you guys think it's hilarious. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> And my friends would tell me, you know, you're missing, you're missing the message. You're, you're missing the part about recovery. And I would go, yeah, you're right, I am, because what a bunch of sickos. <laughs> I took a very closed mind to a lot of AA meetings. And that long timer, she told me, give us a chance, come to this AA meeting. I know you've been going to this Sunday Al-Anon meeting. There's an AA meeting right before it that I go to. Come join me. And I said, no. And she said, okay, well, I'll save a seat for you. I said, don't bother. I am not going to be there. She said, okay. And I went. And this is a lot of how my program has been. No, 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 no. And then I went. And I hated every minute of it. I sat with clenched teeth, and I didn't hear anything. And then there was one meeting where there was, it was a speaker meeting. And it was the guy had something like two years sober in AA. So... And he was standing up there telling his story, and it was, we were arranged in kind of a horseshoe. So there were some rows of chairs on either side here and rows out in the front from where he was standing. And I was sitting over there about three people in from the door. And all of a sudden when he was talking, I could hear my husband, and I could hear my brother, and I could hear 
people I was working with, and I could hear other alcoholics in his story. And I sat there, and <laughs> the poor guy, I cried all the way through the entire time that he was talking. And of course, there wasn't any Kleenex available anywhere, so I was sniffling, and it was, and I was sure that everybody knew because I was kind of up front where everybody could see me. And I had this debate with myself: Well, do I get out? But then I'm making a big commotion because I'm three people away from the door, and I. It was the very first time, and I started to be able to have some compassion for, for the alcoholic, for people that are suffering from something that I suffer from differently, you know, and, and to be able to hear, not so much that I could always hear the message of recovery, but I could at least hear that there was something going on in AA meetings that in some way related to my world, to my life. And um, the beginnings of compassion were interesting to me because I didn't realize I didn't have any. I thought I was justified because I was right, because I'm extremely self-righteous and left to my own devices. <laughs> and um, I have not ever forgotten, I talked to my ex-husband at some point after that, and I'd had some realizations about it, and I had discussed things with people. Every time I made a discovery like that, I discussed it with other Al-Anon people to see, you know, check my understanding, gain some other insights or whatever. And um, it finally struck me that um, light and polite and keeping things, treating people with courtesy, with dignity and respect, whether, you know, however they are. And I talked with him, and I was polite, and it was probably the first time in five years that I'd been polite. And he was so pathetically grateful-sounding that that still kind of chokes me up because it just, I felt, I realized, you know, in that moment, all I had done was treat him the same way that I would treat any other person and he was grateful for that because I'd been so awful to be around and um, it was a lesson and I learned a lot of lessons that way and I get things a little bit and then and then they grow by inches you know I, I none of this program worked immediately for me I did not come in and go wow this is exactly what I've been looking for all my life I didn't I came in and said oh this sucks I hate this you people are crazy you want me to do what and and I had that attitude, but I did stuff anyway because I noticed that I started getting relief. And I knew that I couldn't explain that. You know, when I stopped crying, I couldn't explain why I wasn't crying anymore. And when, when I stopped just automatically reacting to things, I couldn't explain why that was happening. And so I knew it had to be the program because it was the only thing different that I was doing at all. Um, so I had this really great... I had this fabulous prayer partner, and I had this really good Al-Anon friend who acted essentially like a sponsor would be. I never did it alone. You know, I say I didn't have a sponsor, but I certainly didn't do it by myself. I wasn't just, see, I would go and I would read everything, and I would try to figure it out. I would realize that I couldn't, and I would call her or any other friend. I talked about things at meetings. My meetings were small, so we had room for some of the more personal discussion that sometimes you can't have at the bigger meetings. And those small meetings eventually got pretty unhealthy and closed. And when that happened, I was not prepared for it because this was my program. I had these two meetings that I went to, and when they closed and were no longer available, I didn't have any real idea of too many of the other meetings and the times that they were weren't convenient and stuff. And, and what I learned works in this program is you can borrow your friend's program, and that's what I did. I went to the meetings that she went to. They weren't my meetings, but I went to her meetings. And I just kept doing what she did, going where she went and doing what she did. But I took her meetings on until I could get settled in a new way of, of working a program. In, in there, that was like a, that was like a couple year stretch there. Um, when it came time for birthdays and anniversaries, you know, we celebrate that. <laughs> and I got to my first year of Al-Anon and I was like, so pissed that I was still here. It was disappointing, and I was mad that I still had to do this, and he was still drinking, and I'd gone through a divorce that I didn't want. And I could see that it was helping, and it was pissing me off that it was helping, because that meant I just had to keep coming. So <laughs> I did. I kept coming, but I didn't celebrate that birthday. And around year two, when year two came around, I was a little more resigned to it. It wasn't so angry. It was more like, yeah, well, okay, fine. But it still didn't feel like something to celebrate. And my third year seemed like something to celebrate a little bit. And um, I forgot all about it, and I had one of those experiences where, I don't know if anybody else has these experiences, but I decided not to go to a meeting because I just didn't feel like it, and I didn't clean up or anything. I thought, I'm going to go to McDonald's and go home, 
and I looked up and I was at the church. <laughs> and the AA meeting before the Al-Anon meeting, they were all wandering around with cake. And I went, oh, that's right, it's birthday week. And then I went, oh, yeah, I was going to celebrate my birthday and I forgot. And I shared that story with someone. And have I mentioned those sneaky Al-Anon friends? She said, by the way, she has a birthday. <laughs> so I celebrated my birthday even though I wasn't really intending to. But she gave me a chip and... and uh, the next year, the next year, birthday four, I really was actually starting to have enough serenity and I was having enough results and I had enough understanding. I had gained enough understanding that I was able to feel like, you know what? This is a good thing that I'm doing. I started, I had started to understand it works if you work it. And I think showing up and doing these things is what counts as working it. And I shared at that birthday, for some reason not known to me at the time, I shared about um, being suicidal when I got here because they talk about that there's a woman who every time I heard her stand up and share an Al-Anon meeting she shared about how when she got here she was suicidal and I would every time she would say it I would think wow that's got to be a really bad place to be and um, it came to me one day that I, that you know I had I had for a long time this list of possible ways to die you know, and, and I would psych, I would just be randomly cycling through them while I could jump off the building, while I have a gun, while I have a, you know, I have razor blades, while I have, you know, and I had a rejection list that went with that list of ways to die, but it, it came to me one day, maybe that's what it is to be suicidal. I didn't even recognize it. And, and, um, I, I shared about that because it was so amazing to me. And I, I had told my friend, you know, every time she shares, she says that. And she said, I've never heard her say that ever. And I went, are we going to the same meetings? <laughs> I believe that we hear what we're meant to hear. And, you know, I checked with that person. She does say that. <laughs> I was not just hallucinating that. That was not, you know, she, she really was sharing that. But my friend never heard it because it didn't ever apply to her. And I think that's a lot of how this program works. I hear things sometimes that I don't expect to hear. And I shared that. And about six months later, I was at an Al-Anon event I had realized, it took me a couple years, and I'm a slow learner, it took me a couple years to realize that I didn't have any social skills left. <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I had worked on the eye contact thing. I could make eye contact about maybe 60% of the time. But I wasn't very good with conversation because all I had was still in my head to do with disease or program or something, and I just couldn't. So I went to one of these things, and a friend of mine, he's a friend today, he walked up and he said, so how are you doing? And I said... I'm having this struggle because I don't know how to talk to people. <laughs> and I thought I would come and to some of these events and start trying to learn how to talk to people. And he said, oh, well, I understand that, and showed me how. You know, he just started talking about Thanksgiving or topics or whatever. And we, it was a pancake breakfast or something. And in, in the break, I was talking to someone else in the kitchen. And she said, you know, I've been meaning to thank you. Because she said, didn't you? You just had a birthday, like, within the last six months. And I said, yes, I did. And she said... I heard you share that night, and she said, I didn't have an actual list, but it uh, it triggered something. She said, and I was able to get some outside help, and, you know, I want to thank you for sharing honestly because I was in that same place, and I didn't know it either. And I learned from that, you know, I, I need to share. I don't know who's going to hear what. You know, I would like everybody to hear all the great wisdom of all of my words. That's not necessarily, you know, she heard something that I had no intention of sharing. I don't even know why I did share that. And I think that's, you know, that's the other side. That's the flip side. I need to go to meetings and I need to not judge the source. I need to just hear what's coming because I hear things from unexpected sources, especially early on when I was unexpectedly hearing things from those dreaded alcoholics. <laughs> and um, But also I say things and I don't know who's going to hear them. And I knew that she heard it because she came and shared with me later. But I don't know. I mean, there are other people who may have heard things that I've said who have not come and shared. So I think it's important sharing, you know, being honest, sharing honestly and telling the truth because that's, that's how, that's the thing that reaches me is the truth. Um, what? Oh, okay. There's that note. Somewhere right after that birthday, um, they had an Al-Anon celebration for 55 years of Al-Anon and there were speakers and it was a weekend event and everything. And my friend that I went where she went and did what she did, she said, well, her sponsor was making her register, <laughs> even though she could only go on Saturday night. And I said, well, okay. And I had a relationship go south that Friday, so I went fine. So I went and I registered, and I thought, I could really use a meeting. And the next meeting on the program was an AA speaker. Ugh. 
So I took my gritted teeth and my half-closed mind, and I went and sat down quite resentfully that there was this AA speaker when I needed a meeting. And um, this speaker, I hated him. I just hated him. He was talking, and what he was describing about his story, he was a really low-bottom story, and what he was describing about his story that person he was talking about, I just wanted, I wanted to bite him in the arm the entire time he was talking. I was just like, ugh! I could hear all the ugliness of the disease, and I just, it just was, it was hideous. And then all of a sudden, his story just kept getting worse. This is Clancy, if anybody knows Clancy. Um, and there's, you know, he gets down to living in an abandoned car outside of an AA club and still not thinking he's an alcoholic, and I'm like, and missing teeth. And I realized, I just had this moment of realization, the man that he was describing that I hated so much would not be standing in front of me in a suit and tie telling me about it if something huge, huge hadn't happened. And I got it. And, you know, in that moment, all of that anger and resentment just got lifted off of me. And I don't know how to describe that feeling, but I felt it all go. And after that, I started being able to hear... AA speakers and what the message of recovery. I started being able to hear recovery and not just disease. And um, right immediately after that, I started hearing the word sponsorship. Sponsorship, sponsorship, sponsorship. Just hearing it randomly, like alone. And I was like, okay, I don't like this idea, God, but fine. And so I was thinking about, well, who would I like to sponsor me? And I had a couple people in mind, and then I narrowed it down to one person who I thought would probably be a good choice for a sponsor, and and I was thinking about how to approach that and how to <laughs> how to be really, really sure, because it, it took me a long time to be able to put any trust in anybody after I got here. It took me a long time. But at about year four, I thought I was maybe ready to invest a nickel <laughs> in, in that in that bank, and, and um, I would hear the word sponsorship, and this woman would be in front of me. And we'd be talking about a piece of literature. Or I'd hear the word sponsorship and she'd be at a meeting. She'd be saying, I really liked what you shared. And I was thinking about this other woman over here. And I went to an event and and um, the woman I was considering, I thought, I'm going to ask her. Every time I went to talk to her, she turned her back on me. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe this is a message. And I heard sponsorship and I saw the other woman. So I said to my friend, who is that? And she knew the woman's name, and she knew her whole history, who her sponsor was and what she does and everything. I, I never knew how she knew all that stuff, but she knew all of that. And uh, the next time I saw her, I asked her if she was available to sponsor me. I didn't know her name. I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know her story. I knew nothing. But what I had was every time I saw her, I heard the word sponsorship. So I let God pick my sponsor because I'm not good at picking people. And, uh, <laughs> and I had demonstrated that, I felt. And... Um, I called her, and, you know, she said, yes, she had room for another person, and we set up a call time, and I started calling her, and um, she learned that I had not done steps with a sponsor, although it, it was clear that I had done them, and so she suggested starting the steps over, and when we met for the first step, I did the reading, you know, I, I did the assignment, and we talked it over, and... and um, and I told her that story about going to treatment <laughs> for a drug addiction that I didn't have. And, and she, she kind of got this really odd look on her face, and I have her permission to share this. And she kind of looked at the table, and she said, I did the same thing. <laughs> and I said, really? And she said, oh, yeah. She said, I, I went to treatment. And, and uh, I said, well, how did you do that? I said, did you drink a lot for a week or something? What did you do? And she said, oh, no, I just knew how to answer the questions. And I was like... Oh my God, not only did she do the same thing, she did it smarter. <laughs> she didn't, she didn't actually harm herself in that process. I said, so what happened? She said, well, it was strongly suggested that maybe I should go to Alabama meetings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I knew in that minute that God had picked my sponsor because I had known for that four years, I had known that I could not be the only person in all of Alanon with a story that dumb. And here she was, and I didn't know that going in. It's not like I heard that story and went, oh, she's the sponsor for me. No, it happened the other way around. And um, I've been just really, really grateful for that. She's been just a huge blessing. I ran out of notes, and I'm not done. <laughs> so now I'm going to be making it up. <laughs> um, sponsorship didn't make sense to me. Call times didn't make sense to me. I... I had been doing fine, I thought, without that. You know, my program did not change radically when I added a sponsor. Um, but it did change. It changed in some other ways. She has a, um, 
a softness and a gentleness that I had completely lost and that I hadn't started to regain yet by the time that um, I hooked up with her. And she has, um, she's older, she has kids, she has some family experience with the disease and with recovery that I, I don't have. And this is one of the things about my program is, it's just me. There's no recovery in my family. The rest of my family also knows that this program doesn't work because <laughs> they were in that with me. And um, things are pretty crazy in my hometown. My, there's, it's, it gets pretty sick over there, my mother and my brother and, and what all goes on. And I, I nagged my mother for a while that she needed to go to Al-Anon, she needed to go to Al-Anon, she needed to go to Al-Anon. And eventually I noticed, Al-Anon, I am really fortunate because Al-Anon in that town is not the same as Al-Anon here. She's got a choice of five meetings. Only two of them are really viable. You know, it's not the same as what I have here. And she had, she would come for visits. And I would say, I'm going, at first, I didn't go to my meetings when she was here. And I would just be crazy by the time she was gone. Because that was one of the things that was, when I got here, I couldn't speak to my mother. Anytime I opened my mouth to talk to her, it came out screaming. And I couldn't even control it. I would think I'm going to say, I wish you wouldn't do that. And what I would do is I would scream some other thing about how horrible she was. And it was awful. And I had no control over that. And that got better as I was in recovery. But she would... So at first, I wouldn't go to the meeting, but I'd be crazy by the time she was gone. And then it occurred to me, I'd go to my meeting. You know, she just sits around and reads. You know, it's not like she's going to miss me for an hour and a half. So I would say, I'm going to my meeting. Do you want to join me? And she would go, no. And very ostentatiously read her book and uh and i'd say okay well i'll be back in an hour and a half and i would go to my meeting and i would come back and we would move on and i did that for about three visits and then one visit we were planning what to do the next day and i said well i did want to go to my meeting i said unless you'd like to come along and she went well i guess so why not (laughs) wow you know like i was twisting her arm which i suppose i gently was attraction rather than promotion right i i I, uh, stopped trying to force it on her and just invited her to come and eventually she made that decision and she made the comment that this meeting that i had taken her to she went that's a really good meeting how did you find that and i i didn't realize you know she just doesn't have those opportunities where she is that i have here so she called me one time very distressed about what was happening with my brother which was not pretty he was um lying on a couch with a gun and because um, he was out of alcohol and he was out of money and I it seemed like he'd reached that point you know where he couldn't drink and he couldn't not drink and he didn't know what to do and uh, she was feeling very caught in that this was her son and um, she called me and I said well you know I, I said some program things and she said well it's different when it's your child and I was able to tell her I said I hear that from people who are you know who are parents I hear that, that it's different. If, it's, if they've got a spouse and a child, that it's different with the child. I said, my sponsor has kids in the disease. Would you like me to hear, find out what she has to say about this situation? And she said, yes. So I called my sponsor and I said, here's what's going on. And she said, this. And, and I kept talking and she said, that she repeated herself like three times. And I went, oh, that's what I'm supposed to tell her. <laughs> and she said, yeah. So I called my mom back and I said, I talked to my sponsor and she, you know, do you want to hear what she had to say? And she said, sure. And so I told her, I said, she said this, and then she said this. And, and there was this silence, and she said, I think, I guess that does help. And we prayed about the situation together. You know, I, we had gone to church, but as a family, we'd never said prayers together. And I can pray with my mother today. You know, and I have friends today that show up, and I'm not crying all the time. And I, I thought early on, you know, things were getting a little better and a little better. And I stayed because they were getting just a little better, and maybe it could get even better. And then it reached a level of better that I considered good. And I thought, well, I want to keep it at this level. But the, the more I stay and do the things that I need to do, I sponsor others. I go to meetings. I work the steps. I have a sponsor. I do service work. Um, I don't do service work necessarily the way other people think that I should do service work. But I give it my best shot. And, um, you know, things still got better. You know, things are still bit. I would have settled for good, you know four years ago and things have gotten even better since then you know I have this amazing job that I know that God arranged for me and I don't really have time to tell you that very fascinating story see my fascinating story Um, (laughs) but I was unemployed for a couple of years and during those two years um, I built the relationships that I needed to pass the background check for the job that I'm in today 
I didn't have them before that. And that was God. I didn't know. You know, I just, I knew there wasn't work and I wasn't working. So I did what I had to do. And what I had to do was some program stuff and some other things. And that was what I did. And if I ask for guidance and then I follow it, even when it seems stupid to me, which it usually does, I'm still so, I'm still so much smarter than God. It's really amazing. But, um, if I can keep any kind of humility and just go ahead and follow that guidance or just take that suggestion or just do whatever that is, things keep getting better. And it's just kind of amazing. I'm, I'm now I'm just kind of on this, on this where I'm just kind of watching and going, does it, it still could get better? Well, let's find out, you know, and it's, it's kind of neat, you know, and I, I have that joy in my life today and I, I still have the disease in my life. There are still people in my life who are affected by the disease. There's still sickness in my family. I'm the only recovery in my family. But when I started recovering, all of those relationships all changed. Just one person in recovery, which first of all told me just how much impact I was having in a negative way. But second of all told me how much impact this program has. You know, if I'm just taking care of me and keeping my relationship with God on the footing that it needs to be and, and doing that, Everything around me just improves, and I don't have to work at it, and I don't have to force those solutions. Not that I don't still try, because I do, because I forget. And I, I remember early on, when I was starting to understand that it was working, um, hearing an old-timer say that. She said, uh, you know, I'm human, and I forget. And I thought, how could you forget? These lessons are so painful. They're so hard, and they're so huge. How could you forget? And... Ten years later, now I know, because it stops being that awful and lessons aren't that huge. And I, you know, and it's very easy for me to get complacent and say, well, I got it down now. But I never do. <laughs> I never do. And there's always more. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I want to thank you, four of you, for coming and <laughs> for the rest of you for listening. And I'll pass. All right. Let's give Elizabeth another hand for a great talk. <laughs>